Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Six. Spingate opens the rest of the coffins. Five of them contain emaciated little corpses. Three hold living people, sleeping just like O'Malley. I don't remember my mother's name or face, but somehow I remember going to the store with her. Before she put a carton of eggs in our cart, she would open it, check to see if any were cracked. This room is a carton with a dozen eggs, six broken and ruined forever. Six still whole. B. Aramovsky is a boy with dark skin, a shade almost as deep as the black hair that clings to his head in tight curls. The symbol on his forehead is a circle, same as mine, but with a smaller circle inside. He is tall, even more so than O'Malley. Aramovsky's feet are flat against the bottom of his coffin. While his head presses against the top, his white shirt is tight against his muscles, although he's skinnier than O'Malley and the buttons haven't ripped away. K. Bellow's skin is white. Are people supposed to be that pale? Maybe she's sick. Bellow has long blonde hair, so thin that if you walk by her coffin, a few strands slowly move as if hit by a breeze. The symbol on her forehead is a single circle, exactly like mine. The last one, J. Young is another boy. His tan skin looks smooth and soft. He has thick black hair, as black as Aramovsky's, but straight rather than curly. It hangs down to his eyes, covering his symbol. I brush the hair back to see it, a black circle with a solid five-pointed star inside. Savage, Spingate, O'Malley, Aramovsky, Bellow, Young. Other than Brewer, I don't know the names of the dead, and I don't care to. Broken eggs don't matter. Everyone, corpses and the living alike, wears the same style of clothing. Button-down white shirt, red tie, black pants, or a red and black plaid skirt. And there is something else. Everyone is beautiful. Beyond beautiful. Perfect. O'Malley is the most attractive of the boys, but it's a close thing. All three of them have strong features, square jaws, thick necks, muscular bodies. If they were awake, I bet they could run forever. I bet they could lift anything. They could probably lift me as easily as they can breathe. Spingate and Bellow have curvy shapes, beautiful hair, flat stomachs and firm legs. They are flawless. I can't remember any details of my school, but I am haunted by echoes of feelings I had looking at older girls like them. I felt so awkward. I knew I would never have a body like theirs. Those girls always look so confident. Now I have firm legs and a flat stomach, just like Spingate and Bellow, just like those girls I can't quite remember. I have breasts, too. But I don't feel confident because this isn't me. Having the body of a woman doesn't change the fact that I'm still a kid. Spingate is standing next to Bellow's coffin, gently stroking the unconscious girl's hair. Em, I don't understand, 
she says. Why are they still asleep? My past is a vague whisper, shades and hints of events that might have actually happened or might have been a dream. The only reality I can count on is what happened after the needle struck home. Pain woke me. Pain, fear, and blood. There is no blood on Spingate. I don't know why, I say. What woke you up? She thinks. A tingling. All over my body. Did it hurt? She shakes her head, pauses, then nods. A little? Maybe? No, not really. I look into O'Malley's coffin. There is no white tube. Maybe one is there, somewhere, hidden behind the white fabric. Or maybe. The needle was for me alone. Spingate suddenly claps her hands, hops up and down. Her red curls bounce. A mild shock. That's what woke me, Em. Electricity. She walks around the room, studying the pictures carved into the stone walls, examining the coffins, even staring up at the ceiling. I don't know what she hopes to find, so I turn my attention back to O'Malley. I am suddenly afraid he will never wake up. Or what if he's not real at all? What if I'm still in my coffin dreaming? But if O'Malley isn't real, why does looking at him make my throat feel so dry? I found something over here, Spingate says. I think these are controls of some kind. I nod, but don't look. I wrap my hand around O'Malley's firm shoulder. There is something comforting in the denseness of his body. I squeeze his shoulder ever so slightly. He doesn't move. Wake up. Please wake up. I give him a little shove. Still, he doesn't move. I lean in, ready to shake him hard. As soon as I do, a thousand tiny needles drive through my skin. My arm moves on its own, yanking my hand away from O'Malley's. The second I stop touching him, the needle pokes stop. I look at my hand, not sure what just happened. Found it, Spingate calls out. Did they wake up? O'Malley is twitching a little. His face is no longer peaceful. His brow wrinkles and his closed eyes squint, as if he's beginning a nightmare. No, I say. He's moving but still asleep. I'll give them all a little more. I hear a buzz. O'Malley sits up like a shot. A button pops from his strained shirt and sails off to land soundlessly somewhere in the dust. He is terrified, confused. His wide open eyes stare into nothing. His eyes are blue. I hear screams of fear and confusion. Aramovsky and Bello are awake. Aramovsky lurches out of his coffin, lands hard in a billowing puff of dust. Bello sits up, her eyes squeezed tight, her hands reaching out blindly to ward off a threat she can't see and can't stop. Yang rolls out of his coffin, the move fast and graceful, even though his eyes are still closed. He lands on his side, hands over his ears, elbows together and touching his tucked up knees. I look back to O'Malley. He squints and blinks against the light, but he is looking right at me. The survivors are awake. The eggs have hatched. Seven. They don't know their names. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where we are. The only thing they know for sure is that today is their birthday. Aramovsky is the loudest. 
demanding information more than asking questions. I get the feeling that he thinks maybe Spingate and I were the ones who put him in the coffin in the first place. Young keeps glancing at his own arms, flexing them slightly, a smile teasing the corners of his mouth when his muscles strain the white fabric. Between those glances, he glares at all of us like we're not to be trusted. Like we know what's going on, and we're play-acting together to keep him in the dark. Bello is very quiet. She seems afraid to talk. She's the smallest of us. She looks fragile. I'm sure the boys could have broken out of their coffins if they had awoken to darkness and pain. Spingate too, maybe, if she hadn't convinced herself it was impossible. But Bello? She would have been trapped in there forever, until she died and shriveled up like Brewer. O'Malley watches me in Spingate, but he doesn't seem suspicious or angry. When someone talks, he looks at them the way Spingate looks at the tool or the jewel controls. He's analyzing, he's measuring. I tell the others what happened between the time I got out of my coffin and when Spingate shocked them awake. Since she and I have been up for maybe 30 minutes more than they have, it doesn't take long to cover everything. When I stop talking, I wait for them to respond. They don't. Spingate doesn't make a sound. She pretends to study the jeweled rod, so she doesn't have to look at anyone. That's it, I say. That's all we know. The four newcomers stare at me. I woke up alone, had to figure things out for myself. In a way, they have it harder. They awoke as a blank slate, naturally assuming the people waiting for them would explain what was happening which, of course, Spingate and I can't do. O'Malley scratches at his temple. His deep blue eyes drill into me. So, that's all you know, he says. That's it? I nod. Then you don't know much. He doesn't say it accusingly. It's a fact. We, I say, we don't know much. He nods slowly. We. Yes, we. There is strength in that word. Yang shakes his head and looks off disgusted. Bello stares at every person in turn, as if she's waiting for someone to do something, to do anything. No one does. Her eyes are striking, green at the outer edges that blends to an orange-brown around the black dot of the iris. Finally, her eyes settle on me. So... M, what now? I wait for someone else to speak, to know what we should do next. The other five are obviously waiting for the same thing. Spingate, I say, is there anything else on those controls you found? Can we, I don't know, call for help or something? She shakes her head. I think they were for adjusting the, oh, what's that word? Ah, yes. For adjusting the environment and the coffins, I don't think the controls do anything else. I was afraid of that. Then we have to leave this room. Bello wrings her hands together, left clutching right, right clutching left over and over. We should stay put, she says. We don't know what's out there. We should wait for grown-ups to come and get us. Grown-ups? Like the word we, the word grown-ups has power. Grown-ups would know what to do, would tell us where to go. Yang spreads his hands, a gesture that takes in the whole room. What? Grown-ups, 
he says. Do you see any grown-ups here? I don't. Someone put us in this place. Probably those same grown-ups you're crying for. We don't know that, Bello says, her hands ringing faster. Yang spits into the dust. Don't be an idiot. We're in a dungeon. There isn't time for your stupidity. Stop it, I say, my voice sharp like it was when I yelled at Spingate to be quiet. There's no reason to be mean. Yang turns his cold gaze on me. I see his eyes flick to my forehead, see those eyes narrow in thought, like he's almost got something. Then that something is gone. Sure, he says with a smirk. Let's all play nice, because that will make things better, right? I feel something I haven't felt yet, anger. I don't like the way Yang looks at me, the way he seems to dismiss me. We hear a grumble, a muffled sound that rolls fast, then slow, then faster and louder. All heads turn to where that sound came from, Spingate's belly. Oh, she says, her hands cover her exposed belly. She blushes. Sorry, I guess I'm hungry. The last word seems to unlock something in me, reveal a pinching emptiness in my middle. It was there all along, I think, but my brain didn't process it. Maybe I was too busy thinking about all the other things that are wrong to realize that I'm starving. I see other hands on other bellies. Everyone is hungry. Bellow's right, I say. We don't know what's out there, but we know what's not in here. Food. We look at each other in unspoken understanding. Waiting is not an option. There's no water here either, Spingate says. Water is even more important than food. She looks up and to the left, her nose wrinkling. I think that's right. Aramovsky tugs at the sleeves of his white shirt. He fidgets with it constantly, as if on guard against a crease sneaking up on him. Why don't you go, Em, he says. You can find food and water, bring it back for us. We can wait here in case the grown-ups come. Yang makes a sound with his mouth. You're a brave one, Aramovsky, he says. Aramovsky glares at Yang. It's not about bravery, it's about practicality. Yang rolls his eyes. Yeah, that's what it is, practicality. Then how about you go, Aramovsky? The rest of us can stay and be practical. Aramovsky draws himself up to his full height. He is much taller than the other boys. Don't you tell me what to do, he says. Young's arms uncross. His hands drop to his sides, curl into fists. You volunteer others, but you won't go yourself? Then how about I make you go? Young smiles. It's a beautiful smile, the kind that would make me want to follow him around all day from a distance just to see what he does see who he talks to, but his eyes, they radiate something else altogether. Aramovsky is taller, and they are both packed with muscle, but Yang wants to fight, Aramovsky does not. Maybe Aramovsky tried to use his size to intimidate, but it backfired on him, and now he doesn't know what to do. We stay together, I say in a rush. We aren't making anyone do anything, okay? Aramovsky nods quickly. Em's right. Young again stares at me. I get the impression I'm annoying him. O'Malley tries for the 10th time to pull his top two shirt buttons together, even though he has to know by now his chest is too big for that. 
He gives up, instead keeps a hand pressed near his neck, as if he's embarrassed so much skin is showing. He looks at me. M, why do you get to choose what we do? Are you in charge? There is no malice in his voice. He's not accusing me of anything. He's asking a question that needs to be asked. I don't know, I say. Aramovsky points at me. No, he points at my forehead. M can't be in charge. She's a circle. He says that like my symbol has significance. It does, I know it does. All our symbols have significance. We can feel it. But from the searching looks on everyone's faces, none of us know what that significance is. O'Malley shrugs. If M doesn't make the decisions, then who does? No one speaks. We're kids. Someone is supposed to tell us what to do. That's the way things are. Finally, Yang breaks the silence. I'll do it. His arms are crossed again. His head is tilted slightly to the right. He is a walking challenge, daring anyone to contradict him. Something about his presence promises pain. I'll run things, he says. You all do what I say and we'll be fine. I don't think he should be in charge, or Aramovsky, for that matter. Something about the tall boy makes me nervous. But who am I to say Yong shouldn't lead? Someone has to get us out of here. Someone has to make decisions. Yong stares at Bello, who looks down instantly. He stares at Spingate. She clears her throat, blushes again, then shrugs. Yong tries to stare at Aramovsky, but Aramovsky won't even meet his eyes. I'm the next target for Yong's burning glare. I try to match it, try to wordlessly stand up to him, but I can't. I look away. Those fists of his, would he hit me? I don't even know if I've ever been in a fight. Finally, Young stares at O'Malley. O'Malley stares right back, calm, not threatening, but not reacting to Young's intimidation either. M got out of her coffin on her own, O'Malley says. No one else did that. Then she freed Spingate. The two of them got the rest of us out. Without M, we all might still be asleep. Or worse, awake and trapped in the coffins. Young frowns. He seems confused, as if he expected any disagreement to involve shouting and pushing, not simple reasoning. O'Malley isn't even arguing with Young. He's simply presenting facts. So she got us out, Young says. So what? She has no idea what's going on. Getting us out of the coffins doesn't mean she's a good leader. O'Malley thinks on this for a moment, really considering it, then nods. That's true. It doesn't mean she's a good leader he says. But she didn't panic. When Spingate called for help, M helped her. M told all of us what was happening and didn't pretend that she knew more than she did. Don't you think those are qualities we'd want in a leader? Yong says nothing. I wouldn't have thought those things made me a leader, but the way O'Malley pointed them out makes it sound so obvious. Maybe Yong wants to argue, but there's nothing to argue against. Whatever, he says and leans against a coffin. He looks away, taking in the aisle of dust as if it bores him only slightly less than we do. Spingate walks to me, offers me the tool. She doesn't need to say why. The leader should carry it. You can be in charge, Em, she says. She looks at Bello and Aramovsky. Don't you think Em should be in charge? A tooth girl wants me to lead? 
My blurry memories tell me that's an impossibility, and yet I see it with my own eyes. Bello and Aramovsky glance at each other. Her hand over hand fussing starts up again. Until we find the grown-ups, she says quietly. M can be in charge until we find the grown-ups. Aramovsky clearly doesn't agree, but he stays quiet. I take the heavy tool from Spingate. I smile at her. She smiles back. O'Malley is staring at me. Those blue eyes lock me in, make me feel jittery. When he looks at me, does his stomach tingle the way mine does when I look at him? He defended me. Why? Does he really think I could be a good leader? He gives me a small smile, then he shrugs. I guess it's up to you, Em. What do we do now? What do we do? How should I know? I'm in charge, but I realize that in the whole exchange, I never asked to be in charge. That doesn't seem to matter. Everyone is waiting for me to make a decision. So I make one. First, we get out of this room. I walk to the archway. The others follow close behind. Yang waits until we stand before it. Then he joins us. The archway is made of rust-caked metal, covered in dusty symbols, just like the walls and coffins. What I thought might be doors are two slabs of stone, pressed together so tightly the line separating them could be mistaken for a thin scratch. I don't see any handles, any way to open them. Promising, Aramovsky says. Your leadership is off to a wonderful start. I ignore him. Spingate steps forward and wipes dust from the archway's right side, revealing sparkling gemstones set into the flaking metal. Her lips move. I wait while she thinks. It's similar to the coffins, she says finally. I push these three red jewels. She presses them. One, two, three. Each jewel moving down a tiny bit until it clicks. Below the jewels, a small panel pops open. Inside are two holes, same as we saw in the coffins. Spingate claps and jumps up and down, delighted with her discovery. I look at her amazed. How do you know how to do that? She bites her lower lip. Her eyebrows go up. Then she shakes her head and shrugs. I don't know. It seems kind of obvious somehow. She points to a row of three red jewels on the tool's shaft. Press those, one, two, three, then use it to open the door. I pause a moment before doing so. If this doesn't work, if the doors won't open, I have no idea what we do next. Some leader I am. I press the red jewels. One, two, three. I slide the tool's prongs into the holes, feel a small vibration as something locks tight. The tool has become a handle. I lift it. Feel an initial wiggling resistance. I gradually increase the pressure until something hidden and frozen seems to break free. Then the tool rises smoothly and clanks to a firm stop. The floor shudders. The walls groan. A light shower of dust rains down from the ceiling. A loud clang echoes through the air. The door halves slide open a grinding fraction of an inch, making the entire room vibrate. Outside of our coffin room, the light is brighter. The vibrations stop.
the doors slowly open. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.